Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Well, we are looking at the book of Hebrews, if you're just joining us on this Labor Day, just starting, not the whole book, but the end of it, the end of 12 and 13, uh, in a series called Life in the Big City. Hebrews presents the Christian life as sort of a journey towards something that they, it calls the city. I'm going to see why he calls it the city. But anyway, it's a journey towards something ultimate and beyond an eternal city. John Bunyan, in his book Pilgrim's Progress, called it the celestial city. We'll refer to that throughout the series, the celestial city. So people of faith are looking for that city. And even though they live here in this world, in this city, they are citizens of another city, so it affects their life. And Hebrews is going to teach us here um, what it means to live here and be a citizen of heaven. So it's going to talk to us about what it means to be citified spiritually. Now, uh, we looked at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 14 to sort of get our bearings on this text, which we'll be in chapter 13, but right in the middle of it, he reinforces this idea that we're on a journey, and he says, here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come, and we got a little visual of that, Uh, so uh, what we have here is a city, but it's not a lasting city. And what we seek is a city that is to come. And we talked about that city that is to come uh, last week a little bit. Because out of the sky, Revelation teaches that this city comes. Now, what we talked about was what I'm trying to argue in the series, Life in the Big Cities, that this is really the big city. Because it's ultimate and it's beyond. Uh, the city that we call the big city, you know, my mom always said that's life in the big city. This was, uh, for many people, this is all there is. This is as big as it gets. Living here, this life, that's all they have. They have no city to seek after. But this is really the big city. This ends up not being as big as we thought. Now, when we talk about these cities, let me just say something. We're looking for something. We're looking for something in the city that we live in. Uh, that's, what this, that's what drives this sort of metaphor. You're driven. So let me just say this at the beginning of this so you kind of get a feel where we're going. Your heart yearns most. More than anything be accepted and cherished by your creator and your judge. That's what your heart longs for more than anything else in the world. And the city is kind of a metaphor. It's a metaphor for life, doing life, meaning, security, significance, reputation, family, job, possessions, achievement, your impact on the world, all of those things. And in a a world that's not perfect, It's broken, which is where we get the phrase life in the big city anyway. It's sarcasm. It's our way of saying, yeah, this world's broken. You just do the best you can. 
You're broken and the world's broken. You just do the best you can to find significance and connection and meaning and acceptance. But it can't be found here. That's what we learn. And the phrase life in the big city sort of underscores that. But we have this irrepressible yearning. Think about this. To find an eternity of significance. An eternity of significance. You know, Ecclesiastes says, in your heart, you you have eternity in your heart. You're wired for something far more than this city could ever produce. It's not lasting. But you have something in your heart that longs for something that's lasting. We need an eternity of significance. Something that can't be lost. Something that matters in the end. But if everything ends, what matters? So we keep trying to find things that matter and things that end. That's the point. This yearning is universal, by the way, and city is a great metaphor for it. By the way, uh, you know, I have the privilege of going to Aspen in the summers because I have a buddy who works there in the summers, and he has a place, and I get to stay there. And so I told you this little beautiful town's known for its beauty. Uh, and I met this guy at the rec center, this older, I guess he was about 66 years old. He was working out. And uh, I, I noticed him. He's sort of a jovial guy. He was by himself. And so I knew it wouldn't take long before. And I love to talk to people in a gym. I'm not a very outgoing person. But in a gym, I love talking to people. And so I found a way to have a conversation with him. And so we started talking. I asked him if he was a resident or if he was visiting like me. He said, no, I've lived here 20 years. I said, wow. You said, you're very fortunate. It's a beautiful place. And he said, well, it's deceiving. He said, yeah, it's beautiful. And everybody looks happy. And most people there look very fit. Everybody looks like they're about to go on a hike or they just got back off a hike. That's how they're dressed. And they all have water bottles on and different, you know, they're ready to go at any moment on a hike. And so... uh, um, He says, you know what's in those water bottles? It's vodka. (laughs) He says, the drug problem here in Aspen. He says, you don't see that. What you see here is the beauty. But what you don't see is the seriousness of our drug problem. The high rate of suicide. And he just started to unfold for me. Don't be deceived by its beauty and its wealth and its outward appearance. When I got back, I downloaded an article on the city, and um, it's about the suicides, because it has twice the rate of suicide as all of Colorado, and three times the rate in the United States. And this, there's been lots of work done to try to figure out what's causing that. And one of these articles, I thought, did a great job of describing the problem. In a place constantly in the international eye, this writer says, for its national beauty or natural beauty, wealth, famous residents, and party atmosphere, there are factors that heighten the human problem. And then he 
Then she writes this line. They blame it on what they call Aspen's paradise factor. You get to the city of your dreams, as beautiful as one can be, with everything you can possibly have, and you realize that it's not going to cut it, and it's devastating to your soul. That's why God offers another city. Now, you say, how did we get into this? And is this me? Is this how we're all wired? Real quickly, let me take you back to uh, Genesis chapter 3. You remember Genesis in chapter, th- after, after the, uh, the, when the curse is brought on them for sin, Adam and Eve give birth to children, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel. Remember, and, and Abel's blood screams, cries for justice from the ground, and God hears it. Cain gets judged by becoming a wanderer. He becomes a wanderer, a fugitive, sent away from the presence of God to spend his life wandering. What do you do when, when you're that broken? What do human beings, and by the way, all of us are that broken. What do you do? Well, here's what Cain Cain's scenario. Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. And by the way, that leaves a massive vacuum in the soul. When you're no longer connected to your creator, the eternal part of you is sort of broken. Yet you have these eternal inklings. And so you'll, you'll try to look for it in anything. And Cain has this massive divine vacuum in his soul. So he settles in the land of Nod, which means wanderer. So the wanderer settles in the land of wandering. East of Eden. And then, Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived, gave birth to Enoch. And what did he do? Say it out loud. Built a city. Built a city. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but if you read Genesis 4, you'll realize it basically becomes a city in defiance. What do people who have eternity in their hearts but can't find it anywhere do? They build a city because that's where we get achieve, where our achievements, our connections, our security, anything we can do to get our minds off of the thing that matters the most and that we've lost the most significantly. We build a city. Why do you think at the end of Revelation, from right here, at the end of the book, God says, you know what I got to do? I got to build you a city because you can't make one. And so they build this city. We'll have time to look at it a little bit more. But what happens is, separated from God, they figure out how to enhance their life. That's what the city offers. Ingenuity. Enterprise. Technical enterprise. Think about all the technology we have now. If Cain could have seen our city, Tubal Cain was his, one of his sons in his line, and he was the one who comes up with iron and the, and, and the most technical things of the day. And I considered him the Steve Jobs of Genesis 4 because they're just doing everything they can and now we have all these devices and technology and everything that keep our minds off the things that matter most and we're better at it today than ever and so prosperity and development but inside there's an emptiness and a moral bankruptcy and, and, and but yet we're proud of all that we've done It's almost like, hey, God, look at all we've been able to do without you outside the garden. And then you get to, you say, is that really the attitude? Yeah, this is how you know. Because when you get to Genesis 11, here's what they said to one another. The whole whole, whole planet. Hey, let us make bricks. 
and burned them thoroughly. And they used the brick and stone and they used the tar for mortar. So they're doing more building. Come, let us build for ourselves a what? A city. We only call it the Tower of Babel. It's a city. And basically, the city we set out to produce becomes a monument. And we bring it to God. Let's, it'll reach the heaven. Some way, shape, or form, what's in every human that drives them to do what they do is to somehow be able to present to God something that looks worthy since we weren't allowed back in Eden. God, do you think we've done enough to prove ourselves to you? That's what's driving us. And you remember, it doesn't work. It just becomes a big old, you know, you have to read the rest of the chapter to know about the pride that happens. And they have created what they thought was incredibly valuable to God. And this sense of achievement. And you learn really fast in life that you are, uh, spiritually speaking, you're either an achiever or a receiver. You either set on your life in this city and you try to achieve something or you receive. Those are the two approaches. And that's what we get when we get to the end of Hebrews. Uh, Now, let me see if I can't explore that a little bit more with you. What is this achievement thing? And I want to put it into the category of morality because it's a spiritual issue because at the end of the day, they're bringing it to heaven. They want to present it to God. In a sense, it's full of pride. It's almost as like it's almost as if they said to God, "We can do life without you. You made us, but we're self-made." And at the end of the day, it ends up being a moral thing. And I want you to just listen to this. One writer said this, and I had to really concentrate on it for a while. One of my favorite books that I read this summer. He said, all of us are incurably moral. There is an irrepressible pressure for moral rectitude. Some pressure to make ourselves a name before God. And at the end of the day, it's just, we have a sense in us of right and wrong, and we know what's right and wrong in the world, and if we are not necessarily in tune with God's law necessarily, we create our own standard that we think is valuable and worthy. You know, I didn't realize this, but I read it actually this week in a book I'm, I started um, about Sigmund Freud. Because you know what happens is, is you and I are incurably moral, and he's right, and I've been meditating on this for, for a, more than a month. Um, we're constantly looking at things and deciding if they're beautiful or not, if they're true or not, if they're virtuous or not. Constantly doing that. We don't even know how often our mind is actually doing that. Is it meaningful or not? We're doing it all the time. Sigmund Freud found himself puzzled by this in himself. And he admitted that there was something inside him that caused him to act morally, even to practice what he called a traditional sexual morality, even though he didn't believe in a traditional sexual morality. And it puzzled him, he says. I I could not account for that behavior. And then he says, literally, Why do I, and incidentally, my six adult children, also have to be thoroughly decent 
human beings. He says, I can't, it's, it's just incomprehensible to me why. He didn't believe in a morality. But there was still something in him that made him seek out some standard by which he could determine if he was valuable or if he was right or if he had something he could present to, to God. But because we're such obvious failures at this, we create, our, we create our own and we become pretty arrogant about the standard we create. And we're really confident about who's bad in the world. You know all the good drivers in the city. And you know all the bad ones. And that's true in every category of life. You know the good news station and you know the bad one. You know And we're very arrogant about what we know. We're very arrogant about our causes. So if you don't really attach to some moral thing, you'll attach to a cause and you'll go, that cause is better than that cause and it's bigger and you'll fight anybody over that cause. Or you say things like, I never. Who would do that? Or I always do this. I treat people like this. And the only way this really works is to compare yourself to others who are worse than you. And this is why you're a little bit, you you don't feel good when other people fail. You're just a little relieved. Aren't you? You don't like it. You feel bad that you feel that way, but you feel a little relieved. Yeah, I haven't done that. And we take these little moral stances. And some of them work their way into things like a pet peeve. Do you have a pet peeve, a moral pet peeve? Like you can't stand it if somebody lies. And that's your thing, baby. Beat me to a pulp. Don't lie to me, bro. My father was one of these kind of guys. My father could find something to be to feel valuable. You know what you couldn't do in my house growing up? I think I've told you this before. You couldn't put your shoes on the table. You know how little kids are just apt to put their shoes on the table? That was the worst thing you could do in my father's house. And no one's face looks angrier than my dad's when it's angry. My father slept around on my mother, hit my mother, did drugs, but felt really, really moral about the fact that he never put shoes on a table. How is it that we do that? Calvin Miller, in another book I started this week, said this, and it was so powerful, it stopped me in my tracks. I highlighted it, and I couldn't go on any further in the book. He said, sin is, all sin is egoistic. In other words, it's just pride. It's just me saying, God, I can do life without you. But morality is essentially self-denial. Everything I do bad is my, is, 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 is my way of saying, God, I can do it without you. Morality, I'll pull in some kinds of morality, though, to hide that sin. And we all use some morality to do it. You see this guy in Florida, just been following this story. It's a year old. This guy comes out of a Circle K. And he sees a lady with kids in the car parked in a handicap zone. And so he approaches the car 
and starts to have it out with the lady because he, because, uh, he doesn't see a handicap sign on there. Her husband comes out of, the car, out of the store. They encounter each other. This man ends up shooting that husband, killing him. He lies about the whole story and what happened and a video caught it all on tape and they catch him in a, they catch him and, and he's, he's in trouble now. They've finally got him. But in the six hour interview, I, I, I grabbed a hold of this. During the interrogation, here's what he says. Uh, during the six hours interrogation, this fella says, uh, I have a pet peeve about people parking in handicapped spaces despite not being disabled, even though he himself is not disabled. Uh, he said when he saw her sitting in the car, he, he actually examined the rear and the front. I mean, what, who does that? You're going to go check the front and the back of the car to make sure that she ought to be in a handicapped spot. Then you're going to be willing to lie about it. You're going to be willing to... Uh, be angry with her, and then you're going to be willing to shoot her husband. But at least you're protecting the handicapped spaces of the world. Trust me, you have your handicapped spaces. That's our morality. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with this morality in this comparison game. What happens when you get around somebody who's holier than you? If you feel relief when other people fail, what do you think you feel when you get around people better than you, smarter than you, more gifted than you, holier than you, more moral than you, more serving than you? That's devastating to the soul. I have a buddy who just recently told me that a friend of his made it to the NFL. And he said it shocked him when he got there and realized he was no longer the biggest guy on the field. And he was no longer the fastest man on the field. And he wasn't the strongest guy either. You know what happens? Your little world that you built and you, this little tower and city that you're about to hand to God, it just comes crashing in on you. You lose your identity and you realize everything you thought was your best is, is shoddy work. Let me ask you something. What do you think it's going to be like for these folks like you and me who have these little, little moral pet peeves when they stand before a purely, intensely holy God? When the monument you've been building all your life you present it to God and it's shattered to dust and revealed to be nothing at the end of the day but a sham. Your morality just ended up being nothing but self-denial. You were never anything near what you thought you were. That's the way the book of Hebrews comes to its climax. He has been saying it all along in different categories, but when he gets to the end of chapter 12, the strongest warning comes. Because God's going to shake the earth. 
And this is a powerful thing. And so in Hebrews, at the end of chapter 12, just really quickly, let me show you. There are two approaches to God. One of them is like the one I just described. And he's trying to tell them, you didn't come to God that way. You've come to God a different way. But let's look at this way. If you decide to come this way to God, with your moral achievements, what happens? And so it sort of says this, for you've not come to something that can be touched. Now, by the way, he's going to describe the Israelites coming to Mount Sinai, where they get the moral, moral Ten Commandments. You came to something that can be touched. In other words, this is real, everybody. A burning fire, darkness, and gloom, and a whirlwind, and the blast of a trumpet, and a voice uttering words such that those heard begged to hear no more. Now, this is Mount Sinai, but it's never called Mount Sinai because he doesn't want you to get stuck on the location. He wants you to realize this is a reality for anybody. And he never mentions God's name as if because they were coming to get into the presence of God. This should have been a great moment. God was on that mountain, but he's hidden. He's concealed. They never say his name. It's as if they realize they're approaching this mountain and what they thought they were going to get with the commandments and the morality before God. And they got something drastically different. And he invokes this eloquent seven characteristics that you can sense here. You can feel it. You can see it. You can hear it. You can touch it. The only thing you can't do is smell it. If the writer could have made that possible, he'd have had a little scratch and sniff. Because he wants you to realize that the presence of God is overwhelming. There's no vision of God here. It's incredibly impersonal. There is no grace on this mountain. And so in his presence, they're overwhelmed. And you can see. For they could not bear what was commanded. They couldn't bear it. Even, look, and he gives this illustration, and it's really funny. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. Even if an animal that has no moral sense whatsoever can't even accidentally graze this mountain and imagine himself surviving. And yet we humans come with our moral monuments to God. In fact, the scene was so terrifying, terrifying, Moses said, I'm shuddering with fear. Even Moses, the mediator, couldn't figure out how to approach God. He was devastated by it. And this is what happens, by the way, when unholiness meets holiness. When our shoddy little moral pictures get presented before an absolute holy God. They shatter. Remember what Isaiah said when he stood before God? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And he said, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. That's what happens in the face of holiness. The un... And who you really are becomes unbearable. And now listen, I want to tell you that almost none of us, none of us in this room, not a one of us in this room really truly has ever come to grips with our own immorality. Because I don't think we could operate 
So it's much easier to find just some little thing that we just hope makes us better than the next guy. But when it gets before God, you're going to have a meltdown. That's literally what happens is there's a meltdown here. You got all this language of look at the things you experience. This is what happens when you approach God with that kind of morality. There's this burning fire, a darkness, a gloom, a whirlwind, a blast of a trumpet so loud that you don't want to hear it anymore. You're like, get that away from me. It's too crushing. And everything you built your world on falls apart. And so here's how he closes the book with the worst possible warning. He says, if you think that it was devastating for the Israelites who got to Mount Sinai and heard this on earth, they heard this voice. What do you think it's going to be like one day when after Christ has gone through what he's gone through and you rejected it and still produce this puny moral monument to me. How do you think that'll stand up? And that's why he says this. Don't refuse who's speaking now. If they didn't escape when they refused and he warned them on earth, how much less shall we if we reject the one who from heaven? Take care not to refuse the one. Oh, let's see. But his, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised I will once more shake not only the earth, but heaven too. There was a shaking at Mount Sinai. It was a meltdown moment. But there's coming one more. This is Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews saying, there's coming another moment when God will shake the earth. Not only the earth, but heaven too. It's all going to be, he quotes Haggai here. This is Haggai chapter 2. You can read the Old Testament book. Shake the earth one more time. You know what it means to shake? Shaking is the idea of let's let's see if this thing broken or not. See if this thing really works. Let's see if this thing's got what it takes. Now this phrase once more indicates here's what's going to happen. The removal of what is shaken. So what can be shook is going to be removed. So that the unshaken things, there's some things that are unshaken that will remain. What remains when this thing shakes? And this is, this, what's removed is the created things. It's the city that's, that's not lasting. It's, it's, the, it's the stuff that's not permanent that gets shaken and can't survive. So even if the world doesn't crush you and shake you to the point where you realize this city is nothing, there will come a shaking at the end that actually ultimately does it. What remains is what's connected to him. So all our efforts, you take your moral Take your moral life, whatever that monument was, and God's going to grab it and going to shake it. (sighs) 
We can't even fathom it. And then all the games, all the pride, all the arrogance, it it won't make it. That's why he says in verse 29, our God is a devouring fire. Fire is a theme of judgment. Probably not something you've heard about very often here lately. Now let me tell you what this means. It's very important. I've been meditating on this all summer. This lot. I'll admit that I've read Hebrews many times, written papers on Hebrews. Never really quite grasped the whole full sense of what is here. Let me see if I can give you something. This is not saying, this is what's interesting. This is our God is indeed a devouring fire. This is his characters, fiery. And fire means judgment. Does that mean God equals judgment? This was what I was wrestling with in my head. But it's not that at all. It's that God is holy. And anything that comes into his presence must be holy or he, or he is like a fire to it. He consumes, devours anything that is shabby, sinful. Anything that lacks quality in his presence is fatal. So in that sense, approaching him is like approaching a holy furnace. And all creation, the writer of Hebrews is saying, is one day going to be subject to the scrutiny of the creator and they will be incapable of escaping it. That's what he's saying. I have this book that I love and refer to every now and then. It's called More Than Meets the Eye by Richard Swenson. And it's one of my favorites. It's a book on physics um, by, a spiritual, by a spiritual guy. And he just, oh, it's just beautiful. After reading this and looking at it and studying, I went back to it real quick and looked at the sun. The sun burns 15 million degrees centigrade. the pressures uh, of seven trillion pounds per square inch. And the writer makes the point that you, you can't get near it because the pressure and the heat are so phenomenal. In fact, he uses this illustration. This is why I read him because he does this for me. If you took a pinhead, just a pinhead, and you heated it to the temperature of the sun, It would emit enough heat to kill anyone that comes within a thousand miles of it. And he he says this, it gives off so much energy, more energy than all the people that have ever lived in history, have ever produced in their whole life, could never match 
in their achievements, their energy output, burn up in the sun. And did you know that we only get one billionth of its rays? The rest of it goes out in space. What if you're the fiery holy God who made that? How hot do you burn? What chance? What chance do I have? Cherry picking a few moral things along the way to say to God, here you go. How does one enter the presence of a fiery, holy God like that and survive? That's the most important question on the planet. And it's for next week. I just have to tell you that uh, I'm going to leave you right there. I'm going to leave you right there. It's worth contemplating that alone. Catch yourself this week trying to feel better about yourself than you really are and imagine what it would be like to present that to God. So evidently the city and the monument we're working on really isn't lasting and it won't last in his presence. So then how do I get involved in that other city? How does one get in there and live differently? That will tip us over the edge into the study of Hebrews. Would you bow your heads? Father, we must, we must absolutely, though it is impossible to do at the level that is the most real, realize how unfit we are to to be in your presence. the very presence you cast us out of in Genesis 4. And we have spent our lives trying to work our way back into that presence and to learn that it's useless. It's it's just not fit. It could be crushing right now to someone. Help us to see you as a fire that we cannot even imagine surviving in your presence. But you have made a way. And for the purposes of just this moment, it's your son, Jesus Christ. And I pray anyone who senses their need for something today, 
will realize it's in his son and that it's available today. But for the rest of us, the blessed hard-headed ones that we are, next week we will see how to survive when you shake the earth. In Jesus' name, amen.